0: we'll get back into the swing of it. Come in and grab a seat. If you have a Bible handy, turn to John chapter 15. Stop fellowshipping. So today's exciting and that it marks the beginning of a new series, and I've come to a conclusion, which is that uh, the devil does not want you to hear this. Uh, I've come to that conclusion via a few a few roads. One is that's always true, and we're going to spend time in God's word. Um, but through the unusual amount of things ha- happening wrong in the last twenty four hours trying to prevent the service from happening, at at this time yesterday, I was not preaching. Mike was preaching. Mike was attending. Tim and Larissa's mum got married yesterday. How exciting is that? That's very exciting. Friday, was that? Yeah. And then yesterday afternoon, we get the notice that that, that Mike has the spicy flu and will not be allowed to be at church today. Um, And then late last night, we got the message that Phil, who was meant to be playing the music for our service this morning, spent the night in hospital with um, an ongoing nosebleed. They don't know what's causing it, so they've kept him under watch. He was feeling pretty, um, a mix of happy and sorry for himself this morning. Um, When those things happen, I, I start to pay attention personally. I start to wonder what it is that that the Spirit is going to do on a day like today, in a series like this one. Um, And it's not hard to imagine why it would be significant. This little four-week mini-series has come about because Mike and I have sensed something of a common struggle in the people of our church. The struggle is real. Um, We don't want to place any false guilt upon people. Let's let's acknowledge how hard things have been. Um, With sickness and difficulty and uncertainty now heading into its third year, Almost, almost three whole years of living like that that has had a combined effect on us which I think because we're still living through it we don't always pay attention to but life still doesn't feel normal, does it? It still feels harder than it used to be and those difficulties are very real and it is no sin to find them hard. And so yes, life seems to be conspiring against us. Circumstances beyond our control seem to be conspiring against us to prevent our thriving. At the same time for that last three years, habits have formed for which we are responsible, haven't they? Uh, the, the messaging from every authority in our world seems to have been for the last three years that if you have something as little as a sniffle, you should isolate yourself from society and stay home. Um, and we know why that, that thinking was in place. And yet, hasn't it also been true that, um, that the threshold for how hard things need to be before we give up and stay home seems to just have gone down? Um, Whether it be getting the kids in the car to get to church on a Sunday or catching up with our friends or heading to small group. It just seems easier than it used to be to simply go, too hard, give up. Because the lifestyle of the last three years has been habit forming. Not to mention that when we're at home alone, how much easier has it been to be discipled by Netflix rather than by the word of the Lord? We are collectively fatigued, weary and concerned. And yet, at the same time, we should not be content to simply stay where we are and let life live us. The Lord will not hold us responsible for the circumstances we find ourselves in. But we, we are responsible for how we react to the times in which we live. We want to react to that difficulty together and with faith that God has something more for us. And so, as your pastors, we've put together a five-point plan. ...to solve all the problems of the present time. Would you like to hear it? Point number one... We need to seek the Lord together. Urgently. Point number two... We need to seek the Lord together. Urgently. Point number three... We need to seek the Lord together. Urgently. Point number four... We... Need to seek the Lord together. Urgently. And point number five... Return to point number one and repeat. Until we die. Amen? It turns out that as Christians and as a church, we actually only have one move to make. But it's a really good one. It's the game changer. It's the secret play. We seek the Lord together. And so our Reset Refocus series is about getting our bearings back. It's about recentering our lives on what really matters, which of course is Jesus in his presence and in his power among us. Rather than letting life live us, we are going to take back the steering wheel, we're going to chart a new course for the green pastures and still waters that Jesus has provided for our souls. Nothing could be more important for us. And so we've got four weeks planned. This is the four themes we're going to, we're going to walk through. You will notice that these are just the basics rehashed because that's what we need. Um, this week we're going to talk about what it means to abide in Christ. Next week we're going to talk about what it means for us to assemble together as the church. The week after that, we're going to talk about what it means to acquire the kingdom of God. And then the last week, we're going to talk about what it means to ask the Lord to provide for our needs. Yes, you've noticed that we are committed to alliteration here. We are not animals. Why don't I pray as we begin our time in the word together. This prayer is from John Calvin, written in the 1500s, I believe, or the 1600s. It's a beautiful prayer for God to give us spiritual understanding as we turn to his word. And it's one of the many things that you will find in the devotional across the course of this week to give you a foretaste of what's to come. Let's pray. We pray that you would grant, almighty God, that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind at midday. Nor willfully seek darkness. And thus lull our minds asleep. But that we may be roused daily by your words. And we may stir up ourselves more and more to fear your name. And thus present ourselves and all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you. That you may peaceably rule. And perpetually dwell in us. Until you gather us to your celestial habitation. Where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we pick up the theme of abiding. Our text today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. For those unfamiliar, this text is from the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus speaking with his disciples on the same night that he instilled the the ordinance of communion. Maybe as few as 12 hours before he was nailed to the cross. Jesus knows this is his last day, and he is making the most of this opportunity with his closest disciples and friends, the 12. And in this section of the Bible, we find his final instructions and gentle comforts for his beloved friends and for us also, who will live the life of faith on the other side of the cross. John 15, 1 through 17 begins. I am the true vine and my father is the vin dresser. So Jesus is here pulling out a very frequent image used in the Old Testament, where Israel, the people of God, was constantly being likened to a vineyard which had been planted by the Lord and had failed to produce any fruit. Now Jesus is saying, actually, I'm the true vine. Any of the life which exists in that vineyard comes by me and my being the vine. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You've just been through it for three years. Isn't being pruned wonderful? Sarcasm. But he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And so, abide in me, and I in you. And abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Isn't that incredible? Je- Jesus, on the day when he knows that he's about to be until heaven, physically separated from his disciples, apart from the, the resurrection stuff, I suppose, is, is preparing them to live the life of faith in his physical absence. Do you understand? And telling them that the the solution to their greatest needs is for there to abide in him incredible is it not true that it is a, a something of a standard gesture of affection to buy flowers for your life it is my house. I Actually, I'm, I'm a little bit ashamed. Elise definitely buys flowers for herself more frequently than I buy flowers for her, which means that I'm something approaching a failure as a husband. What is it that is being symbolized in the giving of flowers? Is it the strangest thing? I'm saying I love you by taking these beautiful flowers and brutally severing them from their roots and therefore taking away their ability to survive. And then we put them in a vase on the shelf so that we can watch them die a slow death (laughs) over the coming days. How romantic. I love you. Let's watch these flower corpses wither and die and hopefully this will not be a metaphor of our love. (laughs) Happy birthday. (laughs) In our text, Jesus is saying, I am the true vine the source of all life, with deep roots and, and, and divine life-giving power pulsing through my veins. All who are connected to the true vine will not wither and die, have not been severed from the source of life. You, my followers, here saying, remember he's talking to his disciples here, you are my branches. You have no roots of your own, which means you share in my life. In fact, Your continuing life actually entirely depends upon my life as its source. Do you see? I am the vine, you are the branches. I am independent, you are dependent. Is that not stunning imagery for us to understand? Jesus is not saying that branches which have been cut off and removed from the life of the vine will produce less fruit. He's saying that these branches thus removed from him will die but those who are nourished by the life sustaining power of the true vine will produce much fruit what do you think about that claim that jesus makes to be the ultimate source of life the ultimate source of life isn't that big And even in what sense does he mean that? Because, I mean, we're all alive right now, aren't we? Whether we're Christians or not. But if I think about it, how could anything else be true? This earth on which we live, apart from God, severed from the life of the vine, is it not a world of death and of decay and of corruption? That seems natural to us, but it isn't human entropy, our spiritual inertia is taking us not towards life and fulfillment. That is not the natural state of man. But rather, we move inexorably toward death and chaos. Left to our own devices, you and I, we do not have the power to change this. Or to put it in the most obvious terms, if God is the one who has given us our life, how could we possibly go on living with that? Why on earth, why on earth would any of us think that we could have life apart from our God? And yet we think it all the time. The Norwegian pastor, Ollie Hallsby, my apologies, Ollie if I have mispronounced your name. Was an outspoken critic of the Nazi occupation in Norway, and for his actions spent two years in a concentration camp, he said this, all around you is the evidence of your helplessness. Forces that are too great for you and circumstances that are out of your control. All around you, you have your helplessness staring at you right in the face, but We so hate the feeling of our helplessness. It's so traumatic. Like an alcoholic, we are so addicted to our self-sufficiency that we are in denial about our helplessness. And we hate everything that reminds us of our helplessness. Jesus' teachings here in John 15 are like a doorway into honesty with ourselves. Because, maybe, just maybe, we don't have all the answers. Have you ever felt that one? Or or maybe, just maybe, our finiteness really does mean that you and I, we are not as in control as we like to think that we are. We are not self-sufficient. We are not meant to be self-sufficient. So in here, what does Jesus have to say to us in our existential helplessness? In these verses, we have just read, there is one word which is on repeat. It appears in there ten times-ish in just seven short verses. In the Greek, the word is meno, which in the Bible translation we are using is translated as abide. This word is translated with other English words, which all would be equally accurate. It means to abide, to remain, to stay, to continue, to dwell, or to endure. Jesus says to us, abide in me, which means Jesus says to us, remain in me, dwell in me, stay in me, continue in me. Endure in me. This is his call. This is his invitation. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Surely there's some part of that wonderful reality which escapes our words, and yet we know something of what he means. Jesus is using this one word to describe what it means to be a Christian. What this must mean is that becoming a Christian is not primarily about subscribing yourself to a set of beliefs, although Christianity has beliefs. It's not about subscribing to a particular kind of morality, though Christianity has a morality. It is not about a particular kind of lifestyle and action, though it has lifestyle and action more fundamental than even these things christianity is a real genuine enduring connection to the living god who has made us at its core and abiding in christ abiding pictures a close intimate relationship which can only be had with another person to personally relate to god not a feeling not a force, not meditating on a concept or contemplating an idea, but personal connection with a person, Jesus himself. Elsewhere in the Bible, this relationship is pictured as the relationship of a father to his children or as a husband to his bride. To be a Christian means that we are talking about affection, and closeness, and intimacy with God through Christ. This is why Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. The 19th century English theologian J.C. Rowell, you know Mike wrote the sermon because there's so many quotes he gives us this helpful explanation. To abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him. To be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him and using him as our fountain of life and strength as our chief companion and best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds, and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. Friends, Christianity is not fundamentally cerebral, moral, ethical, practical, philosophical, educational, political or social, though it touches all those things. Christianity is fundamentally relational. Relational without a living abiding connection to God through Jesus Christ we are not experiencing anything of the biblical faith no matter what we might say that we believe so why are we starting here in our series of all the places we could begin some of us here need to hear this call to abide in Jesus because we've never heard it before. Maybe your concept of Christianity is is more outward and behavioral. It's more about conforming my behaviors to a certain moral moral grid. It's about going to church, trying to stop swearing, and being nice to others. And so you need to hear this invitation that Jesus gives us to come and be connected to him by the power of the Holy Spirit, because for you that is entirely new. Others of us, We have been doing this Christian life thing longer. But today we need to hear this word from Jesus because abiding is not a one-time decision, but a continuing, ongoing practice. Just like we take the symbol of baptism at the beginning of the life of faith, once and forever, and the symbol of communion as an ongoing observance. Friends, to abide, to dwell, to remain in Christ is a daily decision. More than that, it is a moment-by-moment decision. You don't do it by accident. I suspect that many of us have been following Jesus on autopilot, increasingly so over these last few years. And I hate to break it to you, but there is no appropriate autopilot when it comes to a relationship. Try that in your marriage and see what happens. That's bad advice, by the way, if you didn't pick that up. It will end poorly. If I ask you today, what does your prayer life look like? You don't have to tell me. Just answer it to yourself. Honestly. Not too harshly, but not too generously. What, what, What does your time in the Word look like? What does your intimacy with him look like. To both groups of people, those who've never heard and those who've heard it about 7,000 times, Jesus is saying this. Abide in me, says Jesus. Cling to me. Stick fast to me. Live the life of close and intimate communion with me. Get nearer to me. Roll every burden on me. Cast your whole weight on me. Never let go your hold on me for a moment. Be, as it were, rooted and planted in me. Do this, and I will never fail you. I will ever abide in you. It's from J.C. Ryle. Is it right? Not content to merely live us with what is obviously good advice, necessary advice. There is no replacing the the need for us to abide in Christ, but not being content to simply tell us that fact and then walk away in our passage today. Jesus gives us more, more reasons that we would choose to pursue intimacy with him. Why is it that we would abide in him? Because it comes with promises, not just of life, but of fruit. Let's go back to the text. Abide in me, I believe this is verse 4, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's one thing which I know is true for everybody here today. Not a one of us believes this like we should. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, our flesh hates that. Jesus, I can do lots of things, I can do jumping. And tax returns, micro. wrote that, I can't do the tax return. Planking. Jesus is no liar. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It means what he said. What he must mean then is that apart from him, we can do nothing that will truly last. Nothing of eternal significance. The fruit that he is talking about is eternal fruit, a spiritual fruit. Our lives can only leave this kind of everlasting mark in the kingdom of God if we have been joined to the everlasting one. Some of you are still asking questions like, why am I here? What is, what is my purpose here on this earth? Why do we ask questions like that? Why do we look for these kinds of greater meanings to contribute to? It's because we're desperate to matter, to live lives that are significant. And Jesus is telling you here, you have an eternal purpose that matters. Your purpose is to abide in Him, and in doing so, bear so much fruit, eternal fruit, lasting fruit, and apart from Him, without connection to him you will not but with him in connection with him how can you help but bear this kind of fruit is it not the inevitable consequence of being connected to the vine galatians 5:22 tells us the kind of fruit that comes from this connection to jesus the fruit of the spirit an increase in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness And goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control is not our day an opportunity for a growth in patience and growth in faithfulness, enduring, covenant-keeping faithfulness, and in self-control. This is what grows in us when our roots go deep. Do you want those things? That's the way to get them. Ultimately, bearing fruit comes by simply having our lives and our character come to look more like Jesus by our connection with him. We get fruit. Not just eternal life. Progress. Lasting fruit. We get another thing. Jesus wants us to abide in him that we might bear eternal fruit, but that's not all. Let's see what verse 9 has to tell us. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. My heart is not big enough to take in the size of that promise. Jesus, the author of life, is personally concerned with your joy. How do we get our heads around that? God takes your joy incredibly seriously. Why? Because it does not glorify Him to its maximum level for us to be gloomy, despondent, dutiful servants. Rather, God is glorified when we are unstoppably happy in the Lord. G.K. Chesterton said, joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Happy, holy people is his goal for us. The Apostle Peter called it joy, which is unspeakable and full of glory. In 1 Peter 1. Joy. Joy even today in the midst of the trial. Joy. Joy is what happens when you know that no matter whatever happens tomorrow, everything is still going to be okay. My Savior loves me. He sits on the throne. His eye is upon me and his hand is over me. He shelters me in the shadow of his wing. He goes with me before and behind. He hems me in. The worst they can do is kill you. Joy is what happens when your heart has received more love than it can handle, more safety than it can process, and more hope than it can store even in its own vast reserves. Joy is what happens when us, these balls of human need, when we encounter the one who delights to provide for our every need. Jesus gave us, John 15, so that his own joy might be in us. There's a sermon in that too our God is a happy God, that his joy would be in us, and our joy might be full, complete, lacking nothing, not absent-minded, happiness, deep, soul-satisfying, abiding, contented, Do you want fruitfulness in your life? Do you want God's own joy? We know how to have it. Abide in me, says Christ. There's no other. We, we, we reach to so many solutions. There is only one. Abide in me. Your hobbies, your alone time, your renovation projects, your career, the approval of man, none of these will give you what you need. We want lives that matter. We want fruit that lasts. We want joy that overflows. We want these things. How am I to get them? Picture this with me. Let's say it's 7 a.m. tomorrow morning, Monday. Most of us are getting ready for work, driving to work. There's just a handful of you who are already at work, here, I found out that there was a 7 a.m. recently. We wake up at some point during the day and we think to ourselves, okay, I am going to abide in Christ now. What do you do? Even saying it like that helps us to see it's, it's not mechanical, is it? It's not automatic. It's not simple. And yet, there are steps which we can take, which we know will have something of this effect. In short, we draw near and we stay near. We draw near and we stay near. We draw near through repentance. And we stay near through prayer in the Word. We draw near through repentance... And we stay near through prayer and the word... It sounds so ordinary, doesn't it? And yet this really is the engine room of the whole of the Christian life. We draw near through repentance. Repentance is an act of turning, is what the word means. Every every time you've pulled a a U-banger, if you will, on the road, you have in fact repented. You, you, You were heading in one direction. Now you have turned and are heading in a different direction. Repentance is the spiritual act of turning away from sin that you were previously heading towards and then turning to Jesus for grace in a new direction. Repentance is where we confess to God what is in us. That's the first part, turning away from sin, which means calling it sin, admitting to the Lord that he was right, All along. And that this thing which you have been pursuing was evil, wicked, bad for you, offensive to him. When you do that, what kind of reception do you expect? I have some good news for you. He already knows. No one has ever come to God with the confession of sin and had him go, How dare you? I didn't know. He knows. Your confession is not news to him. It is an expression of your heart to him. It is always acceptable to him through Christ. And it is the beginning of what we do to find mercy, which is promised to us in Christ. If abiding means that we need to draw near and stay near to God, how could we ever draw near... If the sin which Jesus died for is still holding a place of affection in our hearts and in our lives. Your sin is the thing that keeps you at a distance from God. And drawing near will require you to lay it down. What do you need to give over to him? in confession and repentance. He has promised, promised, promised to pour out His grace upon you. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. At the very place of your greatest pain and your regret and your shame, this is where he is delighted to meet you most. We draw near to God first by getting sin gone. Don't give the devil a foothold. So use as a as a wedge between you and your Lord to keep you at a distance from him. And then we draw near through prayer and the word. The the role of prayer in the word in our walk with Jesus is like breathing in and breathing out. Helpful picture. It's like breathing in and breathing out. We breathe in his promises in the Bible. We take them in. We hear his commands, his words of life, and they oxygenate our blood. But we can't live with full lungs. We must immediately breathe back out again, and we breathe out in prayer in response to what God has said. And done we breathe in his promises we breathe in his word we breathe out our prayers we hand over our crises we we place into his palm our anxieties that we have been carrying for for days and weeks and months we hand over the keys to our life and that secret room in your heart that you have that has been kept from him and you let him in You draw near, we turn from sin, and we turn to our God. Then we breathe in again, and then we breathe out again, and then we breathe in again, and we breathe out again for as long as we draw breath. So let's abide, let's remain, let's stay, let us dwell in the presence of our god let's draw near and stay near surely that is step number one to turning this boat around and to finding the power and the strength and the joy that we need in order to thrive in our present circumstances which we cannot change even now we're going to have some time time of silence to practice abiding you can abide when it's noisy It's easy when it's silent. What's going to happen is I'm going to pray for us. And then up on the screen here, we're going to have another prayer from A.W. Tozer. I believe this one's in our devotional as well. Just as a bit of a a prompt. But we're going to to spend a couple of minutes just, just sitting with the Lord and practicing what it is to repent, to turn away from and turn towards and to abide, to hear His Word, to breathe it out in prayer. Let's pray. As we stop here before you, as we pause and linger just a moment, would you speak with us? Would you illuminate our understanding of ourselves and of you? Would your illumination, shine a light on the darkest corners of my heart, held away from you in shame and fear and regret. In guilty pleasure. In fearful self-sufficiency. Control. We cling so tightly to our idols, our Lord. Would you loosen our grips by your love? And cause us to turn, to turn away from our sin and turn towards you. Likewise, Lord, would you give us ears to hear your blessed promises, the sure certainty of what it is to trust in you? Would we hear? And would we understand? Would you bring healing to unanswered questions? Irreconciled relationships? To unfulfilled hopes? Would you meet us in that place and satisfy ourselves with your own presence? Our minds want answers, but more importantly, Lord, our hearts need you while we wait for those answers. Give us ears to hear who you are, what you have done, and how you will treat us, what we need, what is bad for us, what is right, what is good. Help us to draw near, even now. Jesus, we pray.